Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. As an administrator, I constantly feel the push and pull of assessment. Sometimes it's a gentle nudge, sometimes it's a full-on body slam. For the past three years, I've co-chaired a university-wide advisory committee focused on teaching, learning, and assessment. And members of that committee regularly stress the importance of linking all three of those foci together. However, there's also recognition that faculty need support in accomplishing those goals. Simply put, many faculty have interest in undertaking meaningful assessment, but many also lack the expertise themselves to execute. A natural question, then, is how to best prepare faculty for what can only be considered an increasingly essential element of their profession. A recent essay in Inside Higher Education advocates for training doctoral program students specifically on this topic. My guest today is Dr. Terry Givens. Terry is a professor of political science, a former vice provost at the University of Texas, and a former provost at Menlo College. Terry is a first-generation college student and currently is an accomplished teacher, administrator, and consultant in matters related Related to higher education. Today we're discussing her recent op-ed that she wrote for Inside Higher Education entitled Change from the Ground Up, which explores the need to train PhD students on the practices of assessing student learning outcomes. Terry, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you, Scott. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're excited to have this discussion. Um, I, I want to start, obviously, with your background as a vice provost and then later a provost. Um, you have worked closely with faculty and colleagues on matters of assessment. Can you sort of characterize from the perspective that you have why you think uh, assessment is so critical for institutions right now? Well, you know, to be sort of blunt, it's it's really becoming a requirement from coming from accreditors, but, you know, I think it's it's important not to look at it just from the standpoint of accreditation. I found it to be really important from the perspective of change in terms of how we look at our coursework and how we determine whether or not we need to make changes to curriculum, and right now we don't really have good data on what's happening with our students in the classroom, what's happening across programs, and assessment can really play an important role in helping us determine, are our students really learning what we say they are learning? Mm -hmm. I know that when I first started teaching, um, which now seems like a long time ago, um, Assessment was not something that we talked about on an ongoing regular basis. Maybe, you know, when there were accreditation site visits, it would become a topic of conversation. Uh, but, but really, it was something that wasn't a, a dominant, you know, force in the dialogue of, of the faculty um, that I worked with at that time. And then over the course of my career, that, that of course, has started to change, where now um, I think it's safe to say that assessment is something that's talked about not just regularly on campus, but it, but really at all campuses, it's trying to be baked into the part and parcel of what we do as faculty. What, what forces, as, as you think back in your own career and over a time span, I, I, I totally get what you're saying about external accreditors and the desire to do a better job with our students. What, what do you think has, has led to this rise in emphasis on assessment? Are there trends that happen either politically, socially, with students, uh, the way that we teach? I mean, what are some of the things you would point to that sort of necessitated that? 
Well, I think there's been a general trend towards wanting to know what we're getting out of education. And so I think you go, I was talking with a friend recently about going back to the Spellings Commission and the findings out of that where we want to know, going starting with K through 12, you know, the, this push mm-hmm. towards more and more assessment there and, and you know, the, the testing processes that have been implemented in K through 12. And I think we all knew at the time going back to the, you know, 1990s, early 2000s, that this was going to start working its way into higher education. And so in some ways, I started to see this happening in the early 2000s, where colleges were saying, okay, you know, we can't avoid these issues of, you know, the the whole idea of no child left behind and so on, that we need to be able to know what's going on with students. And so, but it's also kind of a customer orientation, I think, that's changed that it's no longer just accepting our word that students are learning what they we say they're learning. And so students are now becoming more like our customers. And as our customers, they want to know that not only is it that they're learning, but that what they're learning is going to take them into the right jobs and that they're going to be able to earn money and, and so on. And so when I was at University of Texas, I saw this trend happening where not only did we have to say that you were going to take this course and you were going to learn these things, we had to be able to say, okay, what good was this going to do me on the job market? It was mm-hmm. this very much a customer service orientation. In your essay, uh, you talked about your own personal skepticism regarding the use of data at, at points in your career. But yet at the same time, you also discussed your transitions and evolutions. Part of that, I'm sure, was the changing role that you had uh, going from a professor into administration. But also you talked about changes in students. um, And and you talked then about how assessment has become more important in your eyes. Can you talk about your personal journey uh, through sort of assessment and and the way that you have um, shifted in your orientation uh, towards thinking about it? Yes, because when I first started thinking about assessment, going back to when I was a vice provost, I was a vice provost from about 2006 to 2009 at the University of Texas at Austin. And back then, I I always, you know, and also when I was a faculty member and we were being asked to do these learning outcomes and so on, I was like, well, you know, how can you actually measure these things in students? Mm -hmm. I just was very skeptical about this idea that you can measure what a student is learning. Um, But then as I, especially over the last couple of years as a provost and going through these processes very intensively with my own faculty, I realized that actually there are some good ways that this can be done. And not only does it help the students and the faculty figure out what they're learning and so on, but what really kind of changed it for me was this sense that as we have these new groups of, not necessarily new, but these Our demographics, for example, at Menlo College had changed dramatically in the last 10 years. We'd gone from being over 50% white students to majority minority. Mm -hmm. And we were bringing in way more first-generation students. And we weren't really, this had just happened naturally because the state of California was becoming very different demographically. And, you know, we were growing, you know, we're majority Hispanic um, in in the K through 12 uh, students. And so 
if we didn't start looking at how those students were learning and if there are any ways we should be changing our curriculum or the way we were teaching because of that, then we were going to be losing out or, you know, those students weren't going to do well in our programs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to look at things like graduation rates. And, and, you know, when you're dealing with first-generation students, we all know there are, are specific challenges that those students have. I know from my own experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I felt is that... The, the data can actually help those students and we can, you know, we made a major change in our math and English curriculum based on the fact that we looked at, you know, this is a is not necessarily, you know, the kind of assessment we're talking about specifically, but just looking at the numbers of students who weren't doing well in our um, uh, beginning math and English courses and uh, figuring out how we could change those things around doing bridge, uh, a bridge, summer bridge program mm-hmm. And, um, you know, trying to figure out a way that students could get credit while taking courses that help them uh, remediate some of the uh, problems they were having with math and writing. And so if we take, take it from the perspective that, you know, looking at the data can actually help us understand what is happening with these, this new demographic of students, then we're only uh, helping to improve things like our graduation rates and, and getting these students through their first year and so on. So I realized that data is actually critical to understanding, you know, you can't, it, it, we can't just guess what's going on with mm-hmm. these students anymore. You know, anecdotes don't work. Um, we really need to understand what is going on in the classroom. And the more data we have, the better off we are. And we really need, and I also realize we really need to be proactive from that perspective of data, um, you know, and so there's all, and I also realized that there's all kinds of tools out there that can help us. So I've been, that's why I'm very excited to be working with some ed tech companies that are mm-hmm. really on the forefront of trying to uh, do predictive analytics. And and so the interesting thing to me is that most of the stuff is really targeting first gen um, and struggling students to help them actually get through that first year and finish college. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had some exciting um, discussions on on this podcast before about uh, micro messaging to students. So, you know, brief text messages of encouragement, uh, reminders about um, attendance if, if uh, there are flags that teachers have said that they're not attending class. I mean, those are all really exciting things, I think, from a standpoint of not only assessment, but also assessment combined with intervention, which, you know, frankly, hasn't always happened in in the history of assessment in in, um, any education setting. I want to tease out one more thing before we turn to the core argument of your essay that that you've been talking about. You know, you've described uh, two very different types of institutions at which you were a senior administrator. um, And hearing you talk about the assessment practices at each of those institutions, it sounds to me like you view assessment as being something that is very unique to each institution because of the types of students and and probably the mission and the type of faculty you have. Is that, is that a fair characterization? I mean, I, in other words, I think some people, when they hear the word assessment, they think big tests like that we see in, in pre-K through 12 settings um, th- that is invariant across different learning situations and institutions. But I hear you saying that it's actually much more nuanced than that. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. If there's, if there's one thing that's true of the assessment processes, I worked at both at UT Austin and at Menlo College, is that they were very unique. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and especially because I'm most familiar with what we did over the last couple of years at Menlo College, 
we really encouraged the faculty and even our accreditors were, who are working with us encouraged us to develop our own ways of approaching um, particular assessment issues and developing our own learning outcomes and, and program learning outcomes and institutional outcomes because we had our own particular approaches to these issues, certain issues around um, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's at the crux of a lot of this is that it's not a one size fits all type of project that you just come in and here's some rubrics. You yeah, know? yeah. It, it has to be, first of all, to get faculty buy-in, and I know you want to talk about that too, um, but to get faculty buy-in, you you really have to do something that fits into their way of looking at a course or a program. Mm-hmm. And um, they have to be able to understand what it is that we are trying to get out of these outcomes, not just say here, you know, it's funny because it can go both ways. Sometimes the faculty just want you to give them something mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they don't have to work hard at it. But what I found was more valuable for both the faculty and for the ultimate um, product we produced um, was to have something, even though it took a lot more work from the faculty, was to have something that they really developed themselves that was unique to their program and um, really matched what they wanted for the students. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and switch gears to um, the core um, argument you made in your op-ed, and, and, and it was one that, you know, frankly, I've not heard many many people, if anybody, articulate in the way that you did. You actually argued in your piece that PhD programs um, across disciplines across the country um, should start offering doctoral students training in this area of assessment. Uh, do you want you want to expand on you know your reasons for that and why you think that's so essential? Um, I think it's essential because the world of academia is changing and, you know, we're seeing, you know, obviously in programs like political science and and the social sciences, humanities, et cetera, it's a a very tight labor market. There's not a lot of, you know, well, the job situation is getting better in some ways, but um, so our students have to look at a wide array of jobs. Not everybody's going to get a job as uh, at an R, and even if you are an R1 institution, teaching is becoming much more important. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, even for just teaching in general, I mean, when I was a grad student, we had one. Uh, we were on the quarter system at UCLA, and we had one quarter where we, you know, did some uh, work on. Uh, we worked with a faculty member on teaching um, as TAs, and that was about it. That's all we got on teaching. And I know some programs are doing better than that now, but we really don't do a very good job of, te- of teaching pedagogy to our graduate students. And so you have to learn it on the job um, once you start. But a lot more students are looking at teaching at um, smaller colleges, maybe even community colleges. And you know, I'm not saying it has to be a requirement, but I think we should offer to students the opportunity to learn more about, you know, if you, if you are writing a syllabus today, you have to be able to put learning outcomes in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the first things, if you get a job as a faculty member, one of the first things you have to do is write a syllabus. And if you don't know what a learning outcome is, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to copy somebody else's, but it would be nice not to be blindsided and know, oh, well, I know what learning outcomes are. I know what rubrics are. 
you know, I can write these myself uh, or develop my own. Um, or I've done this, I practiced doing this in a graduate course, so I have a, some sense of it. I'm not saying you need to spend a lot of time on it, but if we could just expose graduate students to it, and this could be something that's even done in the way we do graduate school now, you know, where faculty, will, you know, I, I always shared my syllabi with my graduate students and would show them, you know, how I picked out my, um, the materials I use, the books and the, the articles. So I could even show them like, this is how I develop my rubrics. This is, you know, so it's not necessarily even has to be, it has to be a course, but as faculty who are training graduate students, we should be working with our graduate students who may go to teaching institute, more teaching oriented institutions or R1 institutions. And, um, show them, look, this is what you're going to be experiencing and just say so that when they get there, they have some sense of what they're getting into versus just being thrown into it without any um, sense of what these things are. And, you know, in general, I think it's good for academia as a whole to grapple with this whole issue of assessment um, from graduate school on. Um, it's almost as if we have to say there are things that are affecting academia more generally that grad students should know about. As a dean, I'm not teaching as much now, but when I was teaching um, in, in our department, it was a lot of graduate classes and research methods, and then also some um, uh, classes related to emotionality, which is one of the topic areas that, that I do research on. So in my PhD classes, um, in working with students, I, 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 in the latter years of when I was teaching, I actually tried to work in exactly what you're talking about, where not only would I talk to them on sort of a meta level about, okay, if you were teaching standard deviation to undergraduates, what are some ways that you can help them understand conceptually what that actually is? Because that's a, that's a, a steep curve for a lot yep. of undergraduates, right? Um, mm -hmm. What would what would a lesson plan look like? And in some courses, I would even have them do a lesson plan related to the topic we were covering in the doc seminar. Um, and the students found that, you know, it, it gave them something additional out of the class rather than just a conference paper. And many of them, you know, have talked to me since then and said that they're still using a lot of the materials that they created. So I think what you're advocating is, is spot on. And I think you're, I mean, we're going to get to the faculty buy-in thing in just a minute, but I think that the way that you're advocating this, uh, that you just said, is naturally the way that we are working with students anyway. It just takes a slight additional step in some cases to be able to accomplish some of that. Um, are there some other skills um, that, that you would point to? Like I know in your article you talked about both quantitative and qualitative data as being important for assessment. Are there some other skills like that that you would like to see more graduating PhDs have background in? Yeah, um, I think we should do a, a little bit more on t in terms of pedagogy. Um, I mean, what you were just talking about is exactly what I think we should be doing is, and I, it, I did the same thing with my graduate students. You know, we would often have graduate students, uh, we, at University of Texas at, Aust at Austin, we would have a chance for some students to actually teach a course. So I mm -hmm. would actually sit with my students and work through their syllabus. Um, and so I would like to see more opportunities for graduate students who are going to go on to be faculty to have the chance to work through a syllabus to, um, well, actually I did another column in Inside Higher Ed where I talked about uh, governance, where fac uh, if they're going to a faculty position, they should learn about things like what is a faculty senate? Oh, yeah. Uh, committees. Um, you know, I was just reading an article somebody wrote about teaching about the tenure and promotion process. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are part of the structure of, you know, and even just letting them know, okay, you're going to be a junior faculty member, you know, make sure you don't get stuck on too many committees. And, mm-hmm. um, and this is a really critical point for women and, and faculty of color, because there's a lot of service that happens that's not formal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things we need to, to really work with students who are coming from non-traditional backgrounds about, um, you know, not getting too caught up in the mentoring processes. I mean, you obviously you want to help students, but as a junior faculty member, you have to protect your time. So there's a lot of different things we can be doing mm-hmm. uh, with our graduate students. So I remember, um, I don't know what, probably 15 years ago when the Preparing Future Faculty Initiative was uh, sort of going on around the country. Um, I remember back then that there were faculty that would make the argument that a PhD program is explicitly a research-based endeavor for the students and that this other stuff is sort of extraneous to what that core, you know, that core thing is that students are being trained on in a doctoral program. So I think that's, you know, likely a counter argument that may still exist in the eyes of some faculty members that, that are graduate faculty members. What, what would be your response to that? I mean, I know what mine would be, but, yeah. but you know, how would you respond to that criticism or, well, or first concern? Of all, yeah, first of all, we can't guarantee that our students are going to get jobs at research-oriented universities. Um, you know, it's just not uh, feasible to assume that all of our students are going to do that. And... Um, so we have to prepare our students for a variety of potential future careers. And secondly, I mean, there's, the world is changing <laughs> dramatically. And there are a lot more pressures on um, colleges and universities in terms of accreditation, in terms of what parents and students want out of these colleges. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about all of the different pressures, but the reality is that teaching is becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and what students and parents expect out of teaching, um, what they expect from their degrees, and also the requirements for service are increasing because of all of these requirements around assessment and um, you know the things that we are looking to do in terms of innovation in the classroom um, and everything from, you know, MOOCs to, um, you know, in terms of online teaching and and so on. So, I mean, we just, we're, it's really a new frontier, I believe. When I look at my time as vice provost at UT Austin to my time as provost, there has been such a huge dramatic change Mm -hmm. in the technologies available, in the the types of ways we're appro- approaching teaching. And, you know, in so many ways, uh, we're falling behind. <laughs> and if we don't really start focusing at the graduate student level and, and moving forward on how we're doing all of these things. I, I really appreciate that point you just made because I, I think that, you know, when many of us were growing up as faculty members, there was sort of this mindset that you've got to hit you know, you've got to hit the ball hard and try for a home run with every class that you teach, every article that you do. And it's sort of like when you go through the promotion and tenure process, you're worried of any failure because, you know, any of that could be a reason that you would feel that you would maybe not get it. And Mm -hmm. I almost feel like that because of the pace of change in higher education now and all of those forces that you talked about, all of the uh, infusion of 
of what I think are exciting opportunities with technology and ways that we teach students uh, using collaborative style approaches that we, we didn't do before. All of that sort of necessitates being willing to uh, fail quick and move on, right? And, Absolutely. And, and what you're describing, you really have to understand when you failed and how to move on. And, and if you don't have a background in, in really assessment, I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that very effectively. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, you've talked about your experiences at the institutions that you've been at, and certainly that could be included in this answer. But have you have you observed any programs that you think are really doing, uh, you know, a stellar job at trying to do the things that you're talking about? Um, I think there are some colleges. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there are several colleges there who are, you know, there's there's still. Um, you know, working on tweaking and things like that. But there's some colleges, I think, like St. Mary's um, in Moraga that is are doing some really interesting things with assessment. And um, I think they've done a really good job of bringing faculty into the processes. Um, and it, I mean, part of it is, I think that the colleges that are doing and universities that are doing really well at it have had a long-term process that is built mm-hmm. up over time. And I think uh, where colleges are having issues is where they've kind of had to ramp up quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're under pressure, from usually from accreditors, and it becomes more of a compliance-based approach. Mm-hmm. So I think if you have more, if you can get away from the compliance-based approach, that's usually uh, more helpful than if you're just trying to meet deadlines and, and so on. So. Um, if you can, and actually what I would would really like to do is tell, if, if any accreditors are out there listening to this, <laughs> is say that one of the worst things you can do is, is really put deadlines on assessment um, mm-hmm. because it's such a complicated process. And if faculty and administrators feel like they're under a deadline, they're just going to do it and do a sloppy job and not take the time that they need to do it right. And, you know, yes, it needs to be done, but there's no reason why it has to be done in, you know, six months versus two years. Mm -hmm. I'd rather take two years and take your time, you know, do it well and, um, you know, have faculty buy-in, give them the breathing space because faculty are busy. Um, actually, I wrote that in my previous column where, you know, you, you need a collaboration from the faculty, not compliance. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think the places I've seen, like I said, that have done it really well are ones where they've had plenty of time to really uh, develop the processes, um, you know, where you've got institutional research working closely with the deans and the faculty and the departments and, um, you know, and not doing everything at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's another problem is, you, you know, taking different parts of campus and, you know, spreading it out over time. One college I know, um, you know, would do, would, would put things kind of on a, a different timeline. So one department would do theirs at a particular time and then the next, they'd move on to the next. And so it gives your, your staff and administrators some time to, you know, figure out what, what worked for one particular department and then go on to the next and, and bring those best practices to the next. Um, so uh, I think that is really helpful. 
Sure. Uh, we'll make sure that we tag the Higher Learning Commission in the tweet when we <laughs> announce this so that so that they hear that. Um, I, I do have one last question. You've touched on it a few times, but l- let's focus on it specifically. So, you know, I mean, assessment is something that requires, um, you know, not to use an overly business term for this, but it requires change management on the part of um, faculty leadership and also administrators uh, in order to be able to do it in in the way that you just described, which is thoughtful, considerate, um, really taking the student and the institution into consideration. So what are some strategies that you found to be effective either in terms of messaging or just general strategic approaches to really try to get um, faculty into that place where they're not just reacting and trying to be compliant, but really trying to do this in a thoughtful way? Well, what really worked for us at Menlo College was having a staff member just really working closely with the faculty. Um, because the fact that, you know, this was very new for the faculty. Um, they, you know, the, I was I had started at Menlo College in 2015, and the previous administration hadn't really focused much on assessment. And it, there was a, it was a much more top-down approach. And I knew we needed to really have the faculty take ownership of this. And so, um, you know, you can't just hand faculty a book on assessment and say, okay, here, do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're very smart people, but they're also very busy people. And, you know, they have their research and teaching and so on that they, and they also have families. <laughs> so, um mm-hmm. You know, you have to be very careful about um, not taking up too much of their time, but you also have to get them to understand that this is something that has to come from them. And so I had a staff member who was our you know, institutional research um, staffer, and they really, basically, we, we set up an organizational structure around the process that helped the faculty to understand each step that they needed to take. And it really helped them clarify their thinking around the whole process of developing their their learning outcomes for their courses and their programs, mm-hmm. um, and it really got them to come together as different uh, programs around what they wanted to achieve uh, for their specific sets of courses. Um, so, and you know, I don't know. It, a lot of it, I think, depends on the culture of departments and um, colleges. But for us, it really was important that we had that interaction going on between the staff person and the faculty mm-hmm. um, on an ongoing basis and that they had this person as a resource to go back to whenever they had questions and that they set um, you know, timelines um, for their meetings and so on and, and, so, and that they were held accountable. Um, you know, I think holding faculty accountable for... Uh, you know, pr- uh, producing certain outcomes is also critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, um, in, in my own experience on, on both sides of this, either as a faculty member or a, a administrator, you you are totally right that this has to be a team effort, and that everyone on the team has to not only set the objectives for the students, but the objectives for themselves uh, and how it is that they're going to do this if it's to be done well. Um, You know, it's one thing to say we're going to respond to an edict from the HLC. It's another thing to say we're going to do this in a way that really elevates what it is that we do every day in the classroom with our students. And you're right, it's a team effort if that's done successfully. Um, I want to thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I think that you talk about assessment in a way that to me at least, really espouses this idea that it's something that is an asset for all of us in what we do as professors um, rather than a burden. And, and I really appreciate that. And I think that message is so important. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Very good. My, my guest today was Dr. Terry Givens, who wrote a recent op-ed for Inside Higher Education, exploring the need for training our PhD program students on topics related to assessment. That article is linked in the text accompanying this podcast so that you can read more about what Dr. Givens had to say. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at wob.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast through Facebook. Just look for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook, like us, and send us questions or comments. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titchworth, your host. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.